mentioned, and as you've heard all this week, the Hong Kong International Literary Festival is on, and Radio 3 is partnering with the Literary Festival to... Um, to share and to introduce you to some of the authors. And we're delighted to have uh, Shelley Wood with us. She's a Canadian author, and she is the writer of a book called The Quintland Sisters. So, Shelley, welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a thrill. Yeah, so as we speak, I am trying to get our Facebook Live up, and I'm doing that right now, uh, multitasking. It's but <laughs> first of all, tell us, um, in terms of your book, for listeners who don't know what it is, okay, I'm starting our video now. So if you go to the Facebook page, Karen at RTHK Radio 3, you should be able to see and hear Shelley. Yes, there we are. Okay. Okay. Um, and so tell us then, um, I think we're upside down, but let's just keep going. <laughs> um, tell us about the book, The Quintland Sisters. And I understand it's based on a true story, right? Yeah. The Dion Quintuplets were probably the world's most famous little girls back in the 1930s. So they were the first identical quintuplets born alive. And this happened in a remote farmhouse in northern Canada. Uh, but it wasn't just Canada that fell in love with them. It was across the world. People watched and sort of hanging on, on bated breath whether they would survive their first few days of life. Um, and they did, and um, and went on to, you know, it's a very complicated story, but um, when I say the world knew them in the 30s, I think the world has largely forgotten about them, because I certainly had never heard their story before. I went searching around for something to write about and came across this photograph of these beautiful, identical, adorable little girls, and thought, what on earth, you know, what was this? Because it wasn't just that they survived. It was that the government ended up removing them from their home and raising them in a sort of public nursery that really? became one of the biggest tourist attractions in North America, bigger than Niagara Falls. Why would the government do that? I mean, did they come from a, a family that couldn't look after them? or? Yeah, that was a key part of it. So this was northern Ontario. So in Canada, that's an English government. But they were born to a French farming family. The mother was 25, and she already had six children. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Um, and, and, you know, they didn't know that she was pregnant with a, a multiple birth. Mm. They thought she was um, having a premature birth because the babies were two months premature. Because this is before fertility drugs right, or anything. Before sonograms and, yeah. yeah. And very early on, the father, um, probably because they didn't have a lot of money and it was this little four-room farmhouse, um, signed a deal with the Chicago World's Fair to have them be put on exhibit um, when they were very young. And Canadians, and I think beyond Canada, just responded in, with uproar and wrote letters to the government. And that led to the government taking, um, becoming wards of the children, actually removing them from their parents, um, ostensibly for their own safety mm. and, and so they would survive those right. first critical months. But they in, ended up staying in this public sort of um, nursery where they had a playground that they played in every day, twice a day for the first nine years of their lives. Wow, so they were like a human zoo almost. Absolutely. People could go visit them and just look at them? Is that, was That's that the exactly idea? what it was. There was two showings per day. Oh my goodness. They didn't charge admission for this but they now realize that the um, and even at the time it was just such a boon for local businesses during the Great Depression right? 1934 to 1941 is what my book covers. So the estimate is that half a billion dollars in revenue was made on the backs of these little girls um, back when they were too young to you know, have any say in the matter. Did the parents receive any money or was it, were they just um, kind of relieved of the cost of raising these girls? No, that's part of the tragedy really is that the parents also kind of seemed to get in on the act. They were paid a monthly stipend for all the, because the advertising revenues that came in, these girls were used to, to advertise everything from cod liver oil to corn syrup to oats to eyeliner 
at one Incredible. point. The Canadian government even came up with a list of things that were allowed to be advertised by these little girls. Um, they even trademarked the word quintuplet, if you can believe it, oh, because really? it wasn't a word back then, of course. Oh, because Never there were no needed. living quintuplets. Exactly. Incredible. And then what happened to them into adulthood? Yeah, my book doesn't cover that, but obviously was a big part of the research I did to sort of understand what their lives were like because they never they never lived normal lives. You know, they they were in this strange environment for the first nine years. They moved home, and at that point, their um, their father, their family had built this enormous mansion that they were moved back into. And um, they weren't they weren't happy there. They you know had a very difficult relationship with their parents and their siblings, which was you know the siblings had been raised in poverty across the street from right. this ridiculous tourist attraction. Um, and much later, when they wrote um, a biography uh, a biography first in the fifties and then again after their parents had passed away, they actually said that their mother had been um, quite visibly physically abusive with them and that their father had sexually molested them. Oh my goodness! So. Okay, That's so the great tragedy, I think, is that as, as awful as it seems that they were taken from their parents and raised in this bizarre bizarre place, they describe it as the happiest time of their lives. Really? Oh, yeah. that's so sad. So with this incredible kind of source material, you decide <laughs> to write a book. How, how did you approach it? Yeah, well, of course, I thought, what an extraordinary story. I can't believe I've never heard of this before. And then realized, actually, much has been written. So probably about half a dozen nonfiction books, including the biographies kind of co-written by the girls with um, some help, some other writers. Um, documentaries have been made. There was a mini-series, um, which quite a funny one that was made in the, um, I think it was in the early 2000s, because, of course, they didn't have good CGI then. So they, how do you, you get five, five babies on right. screen? Um, so I just read everything, I watched everything, and then I relied very heavily on the newspapers of the day because um, the newspapers at the time were just infatuated with these little girls. And as I quickly realized, they weren't doing the job that we would hope of the media today, right? They weren't right. holding governments to account yeah. in terms of, um, is this the best way to be raising these children? They're perfectly healthy. Mm. Um, instead, the newspapers really helped to glorify the myth of this fairy tale world that these little girls were living in. Uh, so my book actually includes real newspaper articles from the day. Okay. And part of that was to try to show that there was sort of no real version of the truth of what was going on here. Very hard to get to the bottom right. of what should have been done differently. And your book is, it's a fictionalized account, right? Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not nonfiction, it's actually a novel. So what challenges does that bring when you're you're trying to tell a story that is based on facts, even though maybe it's hard to get to the truth of exactly what happened? Yeah, I find because I myself am a journalist, I trained in journalism and work in medical journalism, which is a, a real niche. But I found that I had to do all that research to become as comfortable and familiar with the topic as I could. But what you realize is that there are... Um, there's no way of, of knowing exactly this early period, these, these five, the first five years, because everybody who was uh, um, alive at that time has passed on. There are two surviving quintuplets today, but of course the first five years of your life is a bit of a foggy memory, so it did give me the license to sort of fictionalize that time. And what it does allow is for me to bring some eyes inside that situation. So I created a, a fictional nurse who was with them from the, the moment of their birth and told their story from her perspective just to give us that insider view. Mm. So um, in terms of the themes that you explore, you know, the, the sort of um, expectations of women and the, the concepts that we have of, of women, what, what's, your, what's your view of, you know, how, how you approach that? And 
Yeah, I think um, not just women, because there's sort of a um, it's it's quite a theme these days to talk about how women's stories have been missing um, in in history, really. And certainly with these girls, they had no autonomy here. It was everybody else. It was a, a, a sort of board of four men that were making decisions for them in these first nine years. Their own mother had no say in the matter. So as much as they later said that she was very aggressive and abusive with them, she didn't get the chance to establish a normal relationship with them when they were young. Um, and so my narrator is a, a woman. She's this nurse who I invented. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, I think, important to have the perspective of a, wo a woman within that because, as I say, it was it was um, gov men in government that were really running the show. Right. Oh, yeah. And then you've you're here for the literary festival, obviously. Um, you had an event. Year, was it yesterday? The day before. The day before. Yesterday. Okay. Yeah. Which was. Um, which was entitled What is Female? How, how did that go? Yeah, it was really fun. Um, Theresia Enzenberger, I think I'm pronouncing it right, was the other writer who I was paired with, so also a writer of historical fiction. Um, and Elizabeth Lacouture was our moderator, who I understand established the first gender studies program here in Hong Kong. The three of us quickly decided that the book was less about what is female and more about what is female history. Mm. And so it was really an animated discussion about um, um, how you do make those Choices to you know what makes it into the history books and, and where are the women's voices there? Yeah, and yeah. we are actually seeing a lot more um, books about women, individual women, and the history and if they've been influential in science or in culture or whatever these Absolutely. days. Absolutely. And yeah. those stories were not really being told for a long time. Yeah, and certainly all the books written about the quintuplets, even the pe the writers they partnered with to write their biographies, they were all men up until the 1990s. There's now a, um, an excellent nonfiction book by a female journalist in Canada that came out in the 1990s. But, you know, nothing had been written about them in 20 years. And for me, that was a huge motivator was mm. how could I, I'm a journalist, how could I not know this story? Right. And I really did feel it was at risk of being forgotten gotten, not just within Canada, but around the world, you know, all these famous people, Shirley Temple visited them, a, 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 a Japanese prince visited really? them. Um, a lot of Amelia Earhart was one of her last stops before her famous flight when she was lost at sea. So they were they had charmed they, the world. And they, then here we are, um, you know, 85 years later, and many people don't know their story now. Yeah. Well, it's great that you've brought it back to life. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Certainly because it's fiction, I want it to drive people back to their true story. And you can find, you know, scads of it online. Um, they've been interviewed so many times. But I, I do think that unless you go looking, it's harder to find today. Yeah, exactly. And then you have another event tonight, actually. It's, yes. It's at the uh, Fringe Club, the That's JC right. Studio Theatre at 6.30. And it's called Adoption East and West. So what can we expect from that? Yeah, at first when I saw the title of that, I thought, well, this, they, you know, they were not adopted. They were sort of taken by force. But I do think it's um, partnered with Mother's Choice, which is a charity yeah. here in Hong Kong, and really is about the, the um, role of, of women, mothers, of course, but the protection of children, vulnerable children. And the quintuplets themselves have said for years that what they hope in people learning about their story is that something like this won't happen again. Because, um, you know, where was the protection for the children back then? Um, so many other quintuplets and other multiple births have since been born and they've been used in the same way to sort of peddle um, products or um, reality shows and that type of thing. True, so yes. I do think it fits with that theme of, yeah. of protecting vulnerable children. There must be something in, in human curiosity that is attracted to multiples. I, I mean, think so. I have twins actually. And oh, you do? I, you know, and, a, and an older son. And I remember when my twins were born, we'd walk down the street and everybody would stop and look at the twins. And my older son was like, what am I? Yeah. <laughs> Why <laughs> not important? That's right. 
but yeah, yeah I think yeah. There is, there's definitely something in the human psyche that's attracted to multiples because it is still a little bit of a novelty. Totally. And someone brought this up the other day that had they been five identical boys, you know, they would have been adorable when they were very young. But they, I think there's that idea of dolls and, and the, the um, sameness of them. And one thing that the Dion Quintuplet said over and over again is we are different. We are individuals and yet we're being treated as a unit. And quite such tragically, they said they wish they hadn't been born with oh. identicals, you know? Yeah. They'd rather they'd been independent birthed and just could have been treated as individuals. Yeah, really interesting. So can you tell us what are you working on now or next? Oh my goodness. You know, I never intended to write historical fiction. This is my first novel and, and kind of just got sucked into this story and realized, oh, it started in the 1930s. Uh, but one way or another, I'm, I'm starting again with historical fiction and the project I'm working on involves the early um, eugenics movement and, and the relationship Ooh. between that and the early suffragettes because some of our most beloved feminists were also great believers in, in racial hygiene, which I think is another sort of dirty little secret. Wow, I didn't know that. I know, so I kind of want to explore that um, through fiction again with a, a little girl who's born with a very unusual um, disability, we'll say, and how she has to keep that a secret. Oh, wow, sounds fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, you're going to be very busy. Um, Shelley, thank you so much for coming today, taking the time out and, and sharing your story with us. Oh, it's such a thrill to be here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And enjoy the rest of uh, the festival. I certainly will. And we've been speaking with Canadian author Shelley Wood about um, her book and also her talk tonight. If you want to go along, it's at the Fringe Club at 6.30 p.m. To get information and tickets for anything to do with the Literary Festival, just go on their website, festival.org.hk.